Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. This is part two of our little series here on syphilis. The first episode, Syphilis, the Great Imitator, dealt with the uh, the organism that causes syphilis, uh, which is uh, known as Treponema pallidum. Uh, actually, it's a subspecies of Treponema pallidum. Uh, and this is uh, all caused by this tiny, tightly coiled spirochete, this little bacterium that ends up causing all of this trouble for those that infect it. So if you have not listened to that first episode, go back, have a listen. We will walk you through all the stages of a syphilis infection from that, uh, that from the tiny annoyances of the primary infection on up to the disastrously deforming and ultimately lethal stages of tertiary syphilis. As well as the treatment of it, finally. Yes. Um, all right. This has uh, been mentioned in the other episode, but it bears mentioning again. The first recorded epidemic of venereal syphilis occurred in Europe in 1495. By the close of the 15th century, it was uh, pretty rampant. In fact, in Naples, Italy, there was such a huge outbreak that the Pope uh, said, hey, we need some help here. Soldiers were brought in. 25,000 of them. And what do you think happened? Well, they, they got to the, the prostitutes and they got more syphilis. And then, of course, it just got worse and worse. So what we're talking about is is a disease that ravished for centuries throughout Europe. And today we're going to try to get at the, the origins of it. And we're going to try to tease out some of the morality that has been paired with it, as well as the sort of xenophobia that, that surrounds it as well. Yeah, as, as I mentioned before, it's 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 kind of difficult to overstate the importance of syphilis in uh, Western culture uh, for those four and a half plus centuries um, that it uh, that, that it was a problem. Um, and, and as we discussed in the last episode, syphilis is not eradicated. Uh, it is still around today. It's still mm-hmm. something to uh, to be concerned about, and it's still something we have to to treat both with with, uh, with penicillin and with uh, education. But during the 14th century to the early 20th century, it was really permeating the fabric of culture. It was rampant. Yes, uh, when we break down the percentages of it, it's going to vary depending on where in Europe you're looking, but you're generally looking at a 10 to 15% of the population has syphilis, uh, you know, with some degree, uh, you know, margin for error there. And then, uh, upwards of 20% in military. Uh, because again, you have younger men who are potentially traveling around, and, uh, they are the ones that are spreading it from place to place, visiting prostitutes, etc. Yeah, and because of its association with Columbus, who sailed under the Spanish flag, it was uh, called the Spanish disease for a while, and then the French called it the Neapolitan or Italian disease because they caught it from residents of Naples, or so they say. Naples, of course, was one of the major outbreak areas. The Russians called it a Polish disease. The Polish called it a Russian disease. And the Turks called it a Christian disease, (laughs) while the English called it the French pox. So what do you see here? A lot of finger pointing. Yes, it's always the other uh, that you blame the disease on. You have to draw that firm line in your worldview between we the clean and they the diseased and hope that that line doesn't come to envelop you as well. Um, the the Columbus thing is so fascinating, and it's and it's a, a it's a point that is uh, continually studied and argued about. But again, you, we see that first big outbreak, 
1495. Mm-hmm. And as we all know, uh, in 1492, Columbus the sailed the ocean. Blue. Yeah. yeah. So it sounds, it sounds almost too good to be true slash too horrible to be true. It almost sounds too easy. Mm-hmm. But, but we keep coming back to it time and time again. Here we have Columbus sailing to this drastically new land and their contact be it sexual or merely skin on skin, is occurring between uh, members of his uh, his crew and the native population, and then they return to Europe. And then, in their wake, we see the emergence of this 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 powerful illness. Yeah, and you see a lot of wrong-headed ideas about this. This idea of uh, xenophobia, right? This fear of strangers. This idea that there are savages that have uh, spread this disease to Europeans via Columbus. Yeah, you laid with a member of another nation, you laid with a member of another another race. All these these weird taboos spring up uh, and seemingly uh, in concert with the parameters of the illness. As we mentioned before, one of the reasons that syphilis is such a captivating topic is because it's so rife for metaphor, you know, be it a metaphor of, of morality, a, 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 a metaphor of racism, nationalism, a sexism, whatever you want to throw at it, it seems to conform to that that form rather nicely. Yeah. Now, we will get back to Columbus, and we're going to try to get to the origins of, of syphilis. But before we do, it's just worth it to say that this is uh, syphilis, and trying to get to the origins of it is really difficult. Um, it's very hard to study. Mm-hmm. There are many strains, some of which don't exist anymore. And then you have anecdotal claims throughout the centuries. So you can't really pair that with, you know, a systematic approach to say, yes, indeed, this was a case of syphilis. Because again, as we have mentioned before, syphilis is the great imitator. So it's very possible that someone had leprosy and not syphilis. Exactly. And, and again, on that difficult to study note, you, you can't grow syphilis in a culture. You can't have a little petri dish of syphilis. Even today, we have to study it in rabbits. Mm-hmm. So, right. You have to have it in an actual organism to really get a good idea about it. That being said, uh, there have been these pre-Columbian theories kicked around. In other words, this idea of, hey, could syphilis have existed before the New World previous to the late 1400s in the Old World? That's, again, called the pre-Columbian theory. Yeah, and this uh, this theory is, is basically that, to say that, well, well we have other illnesses. If you look back at some accounts of leprosy, you might say, well, that that account of leprosy doesn't match up as well with our modern understanding of leprosy. Perhaps that was a different ailment. Perhaps that was, in fact, syphilis. And instead, we're just kind of latching on to this uh, easy explanation of Columbus, since this uh, groundbreaking um, expedition takes place just a few years before this major outbreak. But of course, uh, the world, because I mean, it makes sense, right? I mean, the world is more complicated than one ship sailing off and coming back. There are other movements going on in the world. It's a time of, of great change. Mm-hmm. People are moving around, not only throughout Europe, but you have movements uh, uh, going into uh, into into. Asia and Africa. So what? So why not? Why? Why could there not be another route for this illness to take? And we'll discuss it. We'll really try to get to the bottom of this. Uh, but so when we call, when we say pre-Columbian, we're talking about old world. When we talk about Columbian, we're talking about new world. Generally, here, yeah, um, old world is Europe. Old world is uh, is Western civilization. New world, the Americas, Colombia, 
etc. Right. And if you're going to talk about uh, New World, you have to talk about something called yaws and facial. Now, these are tropical diseases that are closely related to treponema pallidum, which is, of course, syphilis. Uh, although they are different, uh, Bajel causes mouth sores and lumps in the bone, and yaws cause skin sores and disfiguring growths on the legs. So, of course, they're, they're related to syphilis, but they are non-venereal. Right. They're spread through skin-to-skin contact. They're not, uh, they're, they're not straight-up venereal diseases. Um, you know, granted, you could catch them in skin-to-skin contact during sexual intercourse, but... They're not depending on that as their mode of transmission. The, yeah, but these are all trypanemal diseases. These are, these are all close relatives of uh, the subspecies of trypanema pallidum that causes syphilis. And we bring them up because they're important to study. If you're if you're trying to look at where syphilis, syphilis originated from, then you're going to want to look at yaws and basal because paleopathologists... Bruce and Christine Rothschild used that information to point toward a new world origin of syphilis. They examined 687 skeletons from archaeological sites in the U.S. And we're talking about uh, ranging in age from 400 to 6,000 years. And what they found is that populations to the south looked to have syphilis, while those to the north had yaws. And then by contrast... They examined 1,000 old world skeletons dating to before contact with the new world, and they found zero cases of syphilis. So this kind of gets you on to the route of, well, maybe the new world did have the case of syphilis, although it's not that clear cut as we'll discuss. And this leads us to uh, what is called the Unitarian Hypothesis, which has nothing to do with Unitarians in the, <laughs> the, uh, the religious sense of the word, word. Don't worry, Unitarians, we're not, we're not nailing this one on you. Unitarian in the sense of that, that it unites the uh, old world and new world hypotheses regarding the emergence of syphilis in Europe. The basic idea here is that you do have Columbus and his sailors setting sail from Europe to the New World, to the Americas. Mm-hmm. And when they're there, they do come into skin-to-skin contact, sexual and non-sexual, with natives there. And then they end up acquiring trypanemal diseases. Now, you know, again, think to Bejeweled, think to, to Pinta, think to Yaws, but not necessarily syphilis proper. But they bring back a relative of syphilis, and they bring it back to a drastically new incubation world. We're talking about a, a different environment because in the in the Americas, uh, you know, individuals with syphilis are going to largely be in you know smaller communities. But then you bring them to a European port town. You bring it to a world where individuals are wearing more clothes, thus uh, allowing for less skin-on-skin contact. You're bringing it to a world where you have brothels, a world where you have tiny ships tightly packed with men sailing from one port to the next port throughout Europe. And what happens, according to this uh, hypothesis, is that the uh, uh, the treponemal disease changes and and we get this subspecies of Trempanema pallidum that causes syphilis as we know it. So it is a story of mutation under new environmental circumstances. Yeah, if anyone is interested in uh, taking a deeper dive into this and, and some of the skeletal evidence behind this, there is a paper, a 2012 paper called The Science Behind Pre-Columbian Evidence of Syphilis in Europe, researched by Documentary. And that goes into this uh, much more. And I wanted to quote 
Molly Zuckerman, she's one of the authors of the paper, she says, in reality, it appears that venereal syphilis was the byproduct of two different populations meeting and exchanging a pathogen. It was an adaptive event, the natural selection of a disease independent of morality or blame. Yeah. It's not a situation of, oh, those sinful sailors or, oh, those diseased uh, natives in this new world. It's it's something more complicated than that. Yeah. And, you know, at the outset of this, the researchers for this paper, they really wanted to, to sort of disprove this idea that Columbus and his crew were vectors. Yeah. For syphilis, because I thought it can't be that just, you know, Columbus and his his guys hung out in America and then brought it back to Europe and spread syphilis all over the place. Can't be that simple. Uh, and it's not that <laughs> simple, um, you know, because the trick here is that it mutated, it adapted rather. Um, but they really they went into it with the intent of saying, nah, can't be. Yeah, because it does sound like something you would read in sort of a conspiracy uh, theory kind of message board, right? Like, well, these two dates line up. We can correlate this a little bit. Therefore, that must be what happened. Um, now, now, we do want to drive home that these are all hypotheses and that this is still yes. an area that everyone, there are a lot of papers that come out about this. There's a lot of discussion, a lot of argument, lots of, a lot of disagreement. So there's no definitive answer here. And it may indeed be one of those areas where we never have a definitive answer. It's true. And, uh, you know, the, the, uh, researchers who worked on that paper also worked on, some of them worked on a different paper looking at 54 published reports of pre-Columbian evidence and skeletal remains of syphilis. And they found there that, again, there wasn't enough supporting information and real evidence to say that it existed in its form of syphilis as we know and, and talk about it now. In the old world. So again, there seems to be some sort of direction here in terms of the way this, the river is streaming with information, but it doesn't mean that this is the end point of the origins of syphilis. And we're going to talk about more of the sort of sights and sounds and smells of what it might be like in a syphilitic era in Europe. And uh, I wanted to just read this. This is from the BBC, A Cultural History of Syphilis. It says, in the 1490s, an apparently new and terrifying disease struck Naples in southern Italy and swept fire-like across Europe, reaping a dreadful human cost. It must have been as though hell had come to earth. Pustules spread across the genitals in the face of its many sufferers. Unbearable gastrointestinal pain followed upon fevers, screamingly severe headaches and other symptoms. Finally, flesh fell from bones. Syphilis had arrived in Europe, where it would stay misunderstood, lacking any form of cure for nearly 500 years. Yeah, that's that's pretty rough sounding. Um, and again, re- remember that this was not a disease that affected just the poor. Uh, this was a disease that affected rich and poor alike, that affected uh, royalty and peasant, that affected clergy members. Anyone that was engaging in sexual contact uh uh, ran the risk, a high risk of, of acquiring uh, this this illness. And yeah, this was not a quiet sort of illness. I mean, people could smell you before you even came around. We're talking about rotting flesh. We are talking about your face bearing the marks of syphilis, your body bearing the marks of it. In fact, you could even kind of see it as this sort of uh, scarlet letter A, uh, rot into your flesh. 
Yeah. Again, the the metaphorical power of syphilis is is unavoidable here because you already have the idea uh, in Western culture that that physical deformities may signal inner deformities. That uh, that that uh, that an inner sin can have a fleshly uh, manifestation, and it's super easy to apply that line of thinking to syphilis because here is something that is spread through sex. Here is something that is spread through. Uh, through sin, if you will, and and then has these these terrifying physical um, manifestations, uh, certainly in its later stages. So it's it's easy then for someone to point the figure and say this this is the way these are the wages of sin right here. All you have to do is look at this individual, look at the uh, look at the the sores on their body, look at the deformities of their facial feature, look what has happened to them, uh, and and so you see this just throughout its. Uh, Throughout its four and a half centuries of uh, of unchecked rampaging, and even beyond into the twentieth century, and even into the twenty first, there is there is a moral aspect to syphilis and to other venereal diseases. This is something you caught because you were doing something that was wrong. Like that's the script that is often uh, applied to the scenario. Yeah, and now people have the sort of calling card hallmarks of that disease. Right? right. They look at you and they say, "Oh." Let me see. You've you've got a nasty rash there. You've lost your hair. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps your nose is even caving in into what's called saddle nose. And so, what do people do? Well, they try to find anything and everything that might cover up their transgressions or what would be perceived as transgressions. Right. And bear in mind, again, through all of this, that there are no set of standard symptoms for syphilis, and there are stages where it's undetectable. So. So every everyone's going crazy with ways to detect and treat it, while the the illness itself is uh, is is so difficult to get your hands on. It's the great in, in, imitator. It's the it's the the great hider. Um, so yeah, bad stuff is happening to your body in in uh, the varying stages of syphilis. Uh, so one thing you might do is, to, of course, you may cover things up. You since we are wearing clothes, we're wearing makeup. You can apply clothing and makeup to cover up your sores. Yeah, in fact, uh, syphilis just creates this whole cottage industry of of different things you can buy and do to either feel better or look better. Mm-hmm. So there might be some sort of snake oil that you can buy, right, that has absolutely no medical merit. Or you might visit your local wig maker quite a bit because, again, you want to cover up the bald patch on your head or the baldness so that people don't suspect that you have syphilis. And if you are a prostitute, a merkin is a must. Because, yeah, you might be shaving your pubic hair anyway to cut down on lice, but then you also might have uh, an outbreak of syphilis down there. You want to disguise the sign, so you get a wig for your genitals. Also called a merkin, which is not a Muppet character. Yeah, they're apparently used a lot now uh, in for films, especially historical films. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But historically, it was more a matter of venereal diseases uh, for the men. Generally, wasn't really an option because uh, the uh, well, there's just more to cover up down there. And uh, if, just do a Google image search; you'll see what I'm talking about. <laughs> All right, yeah, there are some logistics there that you can't quite uh, cover with a merkin. But uh, what happens when? Your nose caves in, and your flesh begins to rot away. Well, uh, this creates a problem. And in general, it, it was kind of a rough time for noses anyway. If you'll remember uh, the story of Tycho Brahe, the uh, uh, the astronomer. Uh, I think we did an episode on mm-hmm. him, or at least he's come, he comes up a time. We time did an episode, yeah. Yeah, fascinating individual. Um, I, there may be some biographers that... Uh, 
that creep syphilis in there, but but I think it's pretty established that uh, that he lost the nose in a duel. So mm-hmm. on on one level, you can lose that nose in a duel, uh, living uh, an adventurous lifestyle, getting yourselves into arguments with other armed gentlemen. But you can also acquire syphilis through your adventurous lifestyle, and then you see the saddle nose, the eventual rotting away of the nose. So one thing you can do is you can buy a fake nose to wear over your uh, destroyed nose, and this is. This is as simple as it sounds. If you've ever seen a digital underground video and you've seen Humpty Hump with the the big fake nose on his uh, on his face, who incidentally, <laughs> according to the backstory, lost it uh, in a frying accident, I believe. So, sure. So uh, no dueling or syphilis involved with Humpty, but uh, but it's basically the same scenario: a fake nose that is strapped onto the body or held with wires over uh, the over the, uh, the 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 vacant area. Yeah, in fact, uh, and this is according to Lindsay Fitzharris, who is a medical historian and writes on the Chirurgian Apprentice, which is a great website documenting medical surgeries. Uh, she writes that this deformity was so common amongst those suffering from the pox, as it was sometimes called, that n- no nose clubs sprang up in London. On February 18th, 1874, the Star reported Miss Sanborn tells us that an eccentric gentleman, having taken, taken a fancy to see a large party of noseless persons, invited everyone thus afflicted whom he met in the streets to dine on a certain day at a tavern where he formed them into a brotherhood. And on this site, uh, again, that Lindsay Fitzharris has put together, there is a great example of one of these sort of uh, noses that's attached to a pair of glasses that's attached to a sort of almost looks like a headgear, like early headgear yeah. braces. And it's one that, uh, that, that a female patient wore. Yeah. And you can imagine that worn with a wig and it makes, makes perfect sense. And you know, the no nose club also makes a lot of sense because if you're, you're, you're dealing with this illness, you're having to cover yourself up and wear this, this, this fake nose, uh, over your, your, your face. I mean, there's going to come a time when you want to be able to just take that off and be yourself no matter what has happened to yourself in this illness. You want to be able to just say, hey, here we are. We may not have noses anymore because of this illness, but hey, we're people and we want to look at each other like we're people and, and not worry about, oh, what's ever, you know, all these other people that don't have syphilis or don't realize they have syphilis or in other stages of the illness are looking at me and judging me for, for what I am and making judgments about my moral character based on what has happened. Well, and Fitzharris has that blog post, Syphilis, a love story, which essentially talks about this. And I believe it is Miss Sanborn who eventually takes the fake nose off at her husband's request because he accepts her as she is. You know, it's interesting. I was listening to that uh, BBC program, The Cultural um, History of Syphilis, which I'll, uh, I'll link to on the um, the landing page for this podcast episode. But they, they go into uh, some of the cases uh, of individuals, uh, particularly in the, uh, the 17th century, um, who end up, if not finding pride in their syphilitic appearance, they at least you know, come to own it. Uh, you see individuals like Sir William uh, Davenant, uh, 1606 through 1668, as a poet, uh, playwright, and he was famously not shy about being painted uh, or depicted in artwork without a false nose. So you see a very sunken saddle nose, you know, almost vacant, um, you know, part of his facial features, and he was, you know, pretty upfront about it. Um, another instance, you have um, artist Gerard de Laris, 
1641 through 1711, who's actually a prominent painter, uh, and, uh, and he was born with congenital syphilis. Um, and he, he was, there's actually a painting of him by Rembrandt. Uh, which uh, I'll put on the blog uh, uh, for everyone to see because it's it's a it's a Rembrandt piece, so it's it's splendid to behold. But here's an individual who you know he's sitting for a portrait. He's 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 open and uh, and free about who he is. You know he's not trying to hide it at this point. Uh, and you see a number of individuals, uh, say um, uh, John Wilmot, uh, the second Earl of Rochester, who was uh, portrayed uh, by Johnny Depp in the movie Libertine. Um, you see individuals like this who basically say, yeah, I have syphilis. I have had a wild life and the, the wages of having that wild life are syphilis. So it's, it's almost like a, a, badge, of a honor. badge of honor. Yeah. It's yeah. like when you hear, I've heard people say, uh, point at rock stars, aging rock stars uh-huh. and, you know, say, ooh, they look rough, but they partied hard to get there. You know, to say that, you know, what has happened to them is, is, is like a badge of honor because it says they have enjoyed their younger life and that is why, uh, their, their older form is so decrepit. And you, and that's what you're seeing in some of these individuals. Now granted, these are individuals that were living at the, in the upper echelon of society. So they had a little more room to, uh, you know, to grab onto that pride. They weren't dying of syphilis, uh, you know, in, in the slums. Uh, and likewise, some of these individuals too also, uh, had taken to various um, ideas about how syphilis could be treated. So they thought that perhaps their tr- their syphilis was being treated and managed by regular mercury treatments in one of those mercury steam baths, which, mm-hmm. as we mentioned in the previous episode, may uh, w- you know was was likely making uh, their symptoms worse in some cases. So they thought that a they were above sort of some of the social rules in place because of their position in society, and b that they might have been vanquishing it so they yeah. they were uh not quite as concerned about how they looked perhaps yeah and if you're taking if you're looking at the body from a less religious standpoint and you're looking at more from a hedonistic or even mechanical standpoint mm-hmm. you're then you're saying hey i live in a world in which syphilis exists and if i behave a certain way syphilis is what happens to my body you know um some of these cases too you see individuals where they they're they, they're almost happy when they finally catch syphilis because it means, it, if nothing else, it means they don't have to worry about catching syphilis anymore. You know, they're they're yeah. they're no longer living um, in the shadow of syphilis, but within the dark of syphilis. And you can see where there might be a certain amount of empowerment there. Certainly, if you have to latch onto something, you might as well latch onto that. Although, again, you'd have to be in a really specific social position to do yeah. that. And you'd have to be a male for certain. Oh, yes, indeed. Now, if you had the money, the wherewithal, and you did not want to wear a fake nose or you weren't ready to come out to the world that you had syphilis, then you would try a kind of nasal reconstruction, which in the 16th century was called the Indian Method. And this involved cutting a nose-sized section of skin from the forehead. So there's, again, another calling card or yeah. hallmark that you have the disease because your nose looks great, but you got a big patch of skin. Hey, but you have forehead. a really big wig. That's yeah, true. So That's true. That you have a nice wig. Uh, but they take that skin from the forehead and they would attach it to the bridge of the nose to maintain a steady blood supply and then that flap was twisted into place and sewn over the damaged area which kind of created a replacement nose but again it wasn't perfect in you know really cold weather it would not turn the same color as the rest of your nose so there were certain telltale signs that it it may look like an intact nose but it is not 
your perhaps nose that you were born with. But it turns out that there's a better and, and perhaps more horrific way to take a stab at uh, plastic surgery or early plastic surgery. Yeah, well, it, it is tempting to say it's horrific, but it, but in, in another way, it's kind of beautiful, and it gets at how malleable our flesh really is. Because, again, modern plastic surgery, the, the plastic is referring to the plasticity of the flesh, that you can craft flesh into a form. Yeah, and actually this method did and does... Uh, inform plastic surgeons about how skin grows and how you can mold it and and sculpt it. So, yeah, in this we see uh, the 16th century advent of the Italian method. Now, to to picture this, um, if you don't have a, an image of it in front of you, um, and and if you're not driving a car or doing anything where you need your hands, place uh, place your your palm of your hand uh, kind of on your forehead, okay, and then allow your nose to to touch your arm. That is basically uh, the position where uh, the surgeon would would lock your arm into place. There'd be like a head vice type of s- scenario going on, so that you could not move your arm away. You could not mm-hmm. move your the, the the flesh of your arm away from the flesh of your face. And then that's where you perform the 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 skin graft. You walk a pedicle of flesh. You sort of cut it away from the forearm. Then you stitch it into place where the nose should be in place of the nose that you've lost uh, to syphilis or duels or what have you. And then that's held in place while the the, the grafted skin grows onto the face. So for a, a brief period of time, you have effectively sewn your arm, or a surgeon has effectively sewn your arm mm-hmm. to your face. And then once the graft is taken, then you cut the arm away from it. And you've, you've essentially walked a, a piece of of flesh off of your arm onto your face and then use that to form a new nose. Which is kind of brilliant. I mean, honestly, you ask a plastic surgeon about this and they'll be like, this is a great way to try to get the skin to graft onto other skin and then be able to shape it. Mm -hmm. Um, The only problem here is that for about two weeks, you're walking around with your your hand stuck (laughs) to your head and you can't really move your nose, right? Because that's now stuck to your arm. Yeah, I'm I'm guessing you're probably not doing a whole lot of walking around town like that, but... But yeah, there's going to be a weird period there. But you know, the Italian method, it's a remarkable what it can do. Like it may be summoning images of like a really bad plastic surgery job or something. Yeah. But I've, I've seen some images, uh, particularly like, particularly late 1800s, early 1900s, in which you see multiple pedicles of flesh that are essentially walked up the body mm-hmm. to the face to repair individuals who say lost their lower jaw uh, to, uh, to to gunshot wound. Uh, and then you're able to walk all these pedicles up to the face, and it looks kind of ghastly at first, but then you start putting them in their place. And at the end of, uh, the, of this series of procedures, you have a much more uh, normal-looking uh, visage uh, there in place of the damaged tissue. So in, in, in this scenario, we see the impact of syphilis on early rhinoplasty in uh, Europe. Uh, but we also see other ways in which uh, syphilis ends up changing the way that, that, uh, that medicine is practiced uh, through, throughout uh, the, the old world. Uh, for instance, it immediately it challenged humorism and the doctrine of contagion that was prevalent of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, we also see syphilis as a catalyst for modern doctor-patient confidentiality. 
because suddenly it becomes a, a kind of a calling card for some doctors. Hey, let me treat you for your syphilis because I'll keep it on the down low. Now we just kind of take that for granted that we go into a doctor. They're not going to blab about syphilis to everyone in the neighborhood. And then uh, this is another key fact that was brought up in uh, the book Clean by Virginia Smith. Uh, that I've referenced before in podcasts, and that is that uh, previously you had you'd go into your you know, your local uh, barber shop and you'd have uh, the barber uh, tonsors in the front, the barber surgeons in the back. You, yeah, you yeah. have your hair cut, your, mm-hmm. your face shaved, all of that. That take place in the front of the building. You mm-hmm. go into the back, into the yard, or what have you. That's where you would receive minor surgeries. That's where you would uh, take a, a bath uh, and. And later, as uh, as syphilis begins to spread, that's where you start getting treated for syphilis. That's where you might take your mercury bath. And so the the prevalence of the disease and fear uh, regarding the disease this re- leads to regulation. This re- this leads to, of course, you know, paranoia. And so you see the two separate. So you see the separation of the barber tonsor and the barber surgeon. That's right, because that red and white striped barber uh, pole used to indicate that there were surgeries done there. Right? In yeah. case anybody's ever wondered why um, that pole is outside of a hair cuttery. All right, so that's its impact on on, um, on medicine and, and medical surgeries, um, as well as cottage industries like wig makers, right? Yes. And mm-hmm. people who are, are selling, you know, snake oils. But there are certain things that you cannot cover up here when it comes to syphilis. And one of the things uh, would be your teeth. Now, you could pull out your teeth. You could put dentures in. But if you didn't want to do that, you're kind of saddled with the ravages of your teeth by syphilis. Yeah. And one of the more... One of the more particular things we see here with the teeth uh, is something that pops up in cases of congenital syphilis, and that's uh, something known as uh, Hutchinson teeth. These are, uh, uh, you know, as with all things syphilis, the exact symptoms vary, but this is often typified by sharpened-looking teeth or peg-shaped teeth that kind of have sharpened points on the edges. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you can look for for images of this online. I think I and actually I did a blog post. Uh, that I'll link to on the landing page for this podcast episode that includes uh, the image that uh, Julie and I are both looking at now. But they do have a kind of a monstrous appearance. These are like sharpened teeth inside of a human mouth. Particularly canine teeth. Yes. And so we start to look at this for a little bit, and uh, naturally you, your mind would turn to vampire teeth because that's kind of what this looks like. It looks like a sort of Nosferatu version of vampire teeth. Yeah, and it's led uh, some commentators to argue that the uh, that the evolution of the vampire myth in uh, in Western civilization may have connections to cases of congenital or hereditary syphilis. Uh, the children are born like this; they have this kind. They could have, uh, uh, in addition to these teeth, they may also have elongated uh, uh, fingers. They may have uh, an elongated skull. There are mm-hmm. various other um, deformities that might be interpreted as monstrous by by uh, somebody. Uh, Taking in the scenario, um, and another connection between vampires and syphilis, arguably, takes us to Bram Stoker himself, the author of the book Dracula. And another area where vampires and syphilis seem to converge uh, is in the case of the 1897 novel Dracula by Bram Stoker. Now. Bram Stoker's exact uh, cause of death, and he died in uh, 1912, it remains, you know, somewhat something of a mystery. But some biographers attribute his death to tertiary syphilis hmm. and make the further argument that Dracula itself, as a literary work, is 
is kind of reflecting not only the paranoia re- uh, regarding uh, syphilis that's present in the culture, but also Stoker's own uh, experience with the illness itself. Because you, you look at vampires, you look at Dracula, mm-hmm. and you see uh, something that is at once sexual and monstrous. You see this this uh, this outsider that has come uh, to, in this case, to England, and is is spreading this uh, this illness of vampirism, this uh, this this alien pathogen to 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 uh, to, to women in the uh, in, in the in the area. Uh, yes, they are puncturing the women, right? Yes. So again, mm-hmm. you have to use that metaphor, which always comes up, sex and vampires, right? Um, yeah, in fact, there's, you sent me this link, uh, to a class that's offered, uh, the class is The Vampire in Literature and Cinema, taught by Tomislav Lajinovich, who's a, uh, professor of Slavic and comparative literature. And, uh, he uses that vampire lore to explore folkloric explanations of disease epidemics. Which makes sense, right? Especially if you're, you're caught up in this. You'll say it's the 16th century, it's the 17th century, and this is this, you know, pervasive disease. And you have all of these sort of myths surrounding it. It's possible that, that people could sort of extrapolate, like, maybe there are vampires. Maybe this is yeah. how it's being spread. Yeah, because, again, four and a half centuries in which we could not cure it. Uh, so you're throwing what you can at it. You're throwing... You're throwing actual research. You're throwing snake oil. You're throwing mercury steam baths. You're throwing religion, and you know, because again, it just can't be, uh, it can't be overstated the the connection between uh, between morality and and syphilis here, at least in the way that, that people tried to understand it, or at least ended up viewing it in society. And so, yeah, you throw in a little myth in there. You throw a little magical thinking, and and. And there you go. You can easily see the vampire emerge. Nothing uh, concrete there, but some food for thought. Yeah, which may be why a vampire in the form of Count Spirokit shows up in a Navy video in the 70s talking about STDs, right? Yes. And uh, you can watch this. I linked to the the, uh, the video um on a blog post I did for Stuff to Blow Your Mind. It's actually a fabulous documentary. It's kind of the style of of uh, Schoolhouse Rocks. Yeah. And, uh, and but it, it has a Scooby-Doo element to it as well. Yeah, it's it's very silly. Look, even when they get into some of the rougher stuff, such as uh, congenital syphilis or, or actually showing uh, uh, illustrations of genitals, it's like the setup is very cartoon. It's uh, yeah. Death himself is having an award ceremony, handing out the coveted Fourth Horseman Award for a disease that's uh, that's done the best work in causing misery and death around the world. And who should win it? But Count Spirokeet, who represents syphilis, uh, uh, the the embodiment of gonorrhea, takes some issue with it. Some of the other illnesses are like, <laughs> right. what's so great right. about Spirokeet? What's he doing? There's a cure for it. Blah blah blah. And so Death and Spirokeet, mainly Death, goes on to. Explain to us why, how syphilis works, uh, and why it is a problem, and why enlisted navy men, uh, why, why sailors should be on guard and should uh, go seek treatment for uh, any time they have any kind of a flare-up. Which kind of gets into this whole rich tradition of the military trying to bring a level of awareness of STDs to uh, to everyone. In fact, if you go back to World War One and World War Two. Uh, you will see all sorts of pamphlets and posters warning military members to be very careful, to watch out for SIF, watch out for gonorrhea. And it even reminded me of our quarantine episode in which we talked about the U.S. military quarantining prostitutes in an attempt to try to separate 
what they thought as disease-carrying prostitutes uh, with STDs from military members. Yeah, so you have uh, you you have these campaigns that are basically, in essence, saying, "Hey, sailors, when you go into the next port town." Please stay away from the prostitutes because you could catch syphilis and it's bad news. And you have to bear in mind, too, that even after the advent of penicillin, you'll have situations, particularly in wartime, where there's there's not an unlimited amount of penicillin to throw at uh, at your your navy men's venereal diseases. There, you have you have that a lot of that penicillin is earmarked for the battlefield for for use in uh, in you know helping with soldiers who've been injured in in, in combat. You you don't want to spend it all just on a bunch of, uh, of horny sailors who can't control themselves when they go into a foreign port of call. So they're throwing education at the problem as well, but. They're speaking to a male audience, and and so the the messaging tends to take on a very sexist feel. Yeah, in fact, uh, one of the posters which I'm looking at right now is a really good example. It's this um, it's a photograph of a girl that looks, you know, kind of innocent and pure, and you know, very, very Norman Rockwell. Like this is yes. a Norman Rockwell gal I'm looking at. Very Norman Rockwell. In fact, she has this sort of beatific smile on, as if you know she's doing godly work. And then there are you know some servicemen who are looking at her at a distance. And across this poster, it says, "She may look clean, but." And the butt isn't all red in all caps. And it says, pickups, good time girls, prostitutes, spread syphilis and gonorrhea. You can't beat the axis if, if you get VD. And I, I, what I think is so interesting about this is that there are many other posters that have more, uh, I don't know, what would you say, tawdry looking women that they are basically saying they're prostitutes. But then you have this other sort of, like I said, be to fix smiled, innocent looking girl. And the point is, as you say, is that they're speaking to men and um, they're really underscoring this idea that STDs, venereal diseases, all begin with women yeah. and that they are the font of evil. Yeah, I mean, this, there's this darkness in the woman. It's almost like the like the the feminine form as monster is the message here. And mm-hmm. and you see again, you do see some more fantastic, horrific uh, visions of this. Uh, there's one where uh, the woman is like moving a, a, a handheld mask away from her face, and behind it, there's a death skull. Yes, um, yes. Salvador <laughs> Dali's uh, illustration that he did for a, uh, an anti-syphilis poster, in which you see the the two uh, buxom women that melting. Are, yeah, I guess they're kind of melting, kind of, but they they look like a death skull. You know, it's one of those one of his classic uh, style images where you see the death's head uh, in the form of the women. I'll be sure to throw that on stufftoblowyourmind.com as well, so everyone can see it. And yeah, weren't you telling me about the 16th century hypothesis of the woman as really the germinator? Of syphilis. Yeah, yeah. There was this uh, notion that syphilis emerged because you had, you had women, you had prostitutes who were having sex with multiple men, uh, and then those semens would, those different seeds would be inside her, and they would mingle together and corrupt into the form of syphilis. So, it, and it, you know, they had no, there was no proof to back up this ridiculous theory, but it did place the blame firmly on on women and very moralistically as well. These women are, are sinning and therefore you have uh, sickness arising from them. They are the source of, of the ailment itself. 
Yeah, and uh, not not to get too crazy here, but it just kind of brings me back to this idea of witches. And we talked about witches, mm-hmm. and we talked about you know the power of women and sexuality. And again, here we are ascribing this sort of power, this death to women in the form of syphilis. And, uh, you know, I don't know that that's what all the poster artists intended, but it certainly uh, captured the spirit of the times. Yeah. And, and again, they were talking to a predominantly male audience, uh, as we mentioned before, even in, uh, in you know, over the, the, the centuries that syphilis was really ravaging Europe. You saw the highest percentages of infection uh, in, the, uh, in the in the soldiers or certainly a higher percentage than in the, the rest of the, the population. So soldiers and prostitutes were a key area of transference. Indeed. All right, so there you have it. Uh, again, there's just there's not enough time, in, even in a series of podcasts, to really get into all the ways that syphilis informed uh, uh, Western culture during its uh, uh, four and a half centuries of unchecked uh, life. But uh, but hopefully we hit some of the high points. We hit some of the the ideas that were at play here about uh, about uh, us versus the other, about men and women, about uh, morality, about the the cosmetics of dealing with syphilis, and if nothing else, it should serve as an interesting starting point uh, for your own uh, exploration of the topic. And also touching on the origin of it as well, and and knowing that we don't have the end all be all theory in place yet, but we do have an idea of where it came from. All right, um, you guys can find us at a multitude of places. Yeah, that's right. Go to stufftoblowyourmind.com. That is the mothership. You will find all the blog posts, the podcasts, the videos, etc., including a number of different items related to this uh, syphilis series that we've put out. And you can also find us at Mind Stuff Show on YouTube. And if you've got some ideas percolating there about the topic we covered today or any sort of stories you want to share with us, you can do so at blowthemindatdiscovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 